Switches are flipped, so we are live. We are live. I'm not done sharing. <laughs> <laughs> Too many social networks must share. Hey, welcome to Montreal Sauce. If you're listening to a download from our site or through iTunes or the feed, you should know that we record these live every Thursday evening. Uh, go to MontrealSauce.com, click the live button. On the live page, you'll even find a chat window. You can enter a nickname and fill out a fun CAPTCHA to prove you are human. And you can interact with us or distract us. Um, and if you can't join us, you know, jump on Twitter, tweet questions for us and our guest at Montreal Sauce, all one word. Hi, my name is Chris. I'm in Edmonton. I'm the Robin of the show. And the main man with the audio gear in the Bat Cave doing the Bat Tootsie is Paul. <laughs> Hi, Paul. Hello. <laughs> I'm Batman. <laughs> um, on this show, uh, Paul and I like to talk to makers and folks who are creating art, developing apps, services, and people who are pioneering through uh, the new pathways in our internet-connected world. Um, tonight's guest is a playwright, an author, an artist, a fellow Edmontonian, and a professional liar, as his website indicates, Mr. Marty Chan. Hello. Hello. <laughs> um Typically, I I try to stay away from the CBC um, uh, introductions uh, and just let the guests introduce themselves. I don't know how that brief description of you was. Do you have anything to add, or do you 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 are the best person to introduce yourself? I guess. <laughs> okay, I'm also a petter of cats. I have uh, two <laughs> lovely tuxedo cats that uh, <laughs> uh, are. Uh, Right now they're scrounging around in the garbage can looking for food. So um, uh, uh, that, that's my way of saying that, that a lot of my life winds up in, in my book. So uh, I often draw inspiration from uh, real life experiences. Uh, my, uh, my claim to fame in theater is a play called Mom, Dad, I'm Living with a White Girl, which is semi-autobiographical. And uh, my Marty Chan mystery series were inspired by my childhood experiences growing up in a small town in Alberta. Uh, so basically, I've rated my personal life for all the stories that, that, that I've written over the years. And uh, the reason you agreed to be on the podcast, right? The new book opportunity. These two guys. <laughs> <laughs> right. These two crazy podcasters <laughs> right. have some kind of a story. Exactly. Um, yeah, so I did uh, the research. Um, and uh, so really, uh, how does your story begin? Uh, were, your, were you like in your parents' basement uh, hand-scribing short stories in crayon at age seven? Or, or where does this begin? Oh, no, no, not even <laughs> close. My parents wanted me to be an engineer when I was young. And uh, I, I'd always had sort of a creative imagination um, I was constantly coming up with stories. I was uh, at the time I was the firstborn son, only child until I was about fifteen, and then my kid brother came around. So, in the sort of formative years of my childhood, uh, being the only Chinese kid at school and being the only son of uh, two uh, uh, working class uh, parents, uh, I really only had my imagination as my friend. So I, I was constantly making up stories, but not writing them down. I would sort of act out stories with my action figures. I think I had a, a I think I used a Batman, a Superman, and, and an and an Aquaman, and I would play out a soap opera with those three action figures. Uh, I didn't really think about 
uh, writing until I was in, I think, grade 11. And that's when my language arts teacher, Mr. Nigro, gave our class a homework assignment. And and I remember it was my favorite uh, assignment that, that I'd ever received in, in any kind of writing course. Uh, he basically said, uh, I'm going to get you guys to pretend that you won the lottery and you have a million dollars and you could spend the money on anything you wanted. All you have to do is write down what you would spend the money on. I was a lazy teenager, so I thought I would use the money to renovate my bedroom and make my dream bedroom. I was a lazy teenager, and so my idea of a dream bedroom was to have a bed I never had to get out of to do all the things I wanted to do. (laughs) And I put my bed on an elevator. Top level is where I slept. I pushed a button. It would lower to a level that had a library with all the books I wanted to read. Uh, Next level had a big screen TV and all the movies I wanted to watch. Uh, next level had a kitchen and a bathroom with like an automatic junk food dispenser. So if I wanted to have like a pizza and Kentucky fried chicken, I could just press a button and it'd show up. Uh, below that, there was a video game arcade and the bottom level was an indoor swimming pool. I remember I, I handed in that assignment and Mr. Nigro gave it back to me a few days later and he said, Marty, you have a great imagination. You should, really should write down more of your ideas. Well, that that sort of sparked me into thinking about putting some of my ideas down on paper. And after that, I I, I joined the school newspaper. I started playing a a role-playing game, Dungeons and Dragons, where I was the dungeon master creating adventures for my friends to go on. And uh, that that started me thinking about uh, creative writing. Uh, But unfortunately, when I graduated from high school, my parents wanted me to be an engineer and I, I kind of caved to parental pressure and I went to the University of Alberta to study engineering for one year. And uh, if you can imagine this, uh, a, a small town boy leaving his parents' house for the first time, uh, going to Edmonton or going to a big city, going to university and living in residence with a bunch of other small town kids who were leaving home for the first time and discovering uh, giant kegs of beer. <laughs> Uh, I wound up majoring in parties and uh, my mark slipped. Uh, by the end of the first year of university or first year of engineering, I earned what they called the dean's vacation. Ah, yes. Which is the polite way of saying don't let the door hit you in the ass on your way out. <laughs> uh, so I had a year to find myself. And during that year, I sort of thought back to what I, what I enjoyed doing in high school. And the thing that I kept circling around was uh, my uh, language arts teacher, Mr. Nigro, telling me that I had a great imagination, I should write more. And I decided to sort of pursue that dream. And uh, I went back to university, got a degree in English. And uh, after I finished that degree, I probably uh, set about trying to find work as a writer. Wow. I, uh, a couple of things struck me in that. Um, that's a way better dream bedroom than my dream bedroom. Um, well, you have to keep in mind this is before the days of like iPads and iPhones. So now <laughs> the library I can comes to you through with the tablet in your lap. Yeah, that's true. But I always wanted, um, like, I just took it literal. Like, I just thought you should be able to like open the door and like the entire room, no matter what its size, was a bed. Um, <laughs> <laughs> that was my leisure bedroom idea. Um, the uh, the other thing is, is I didn't, um, I didn't realize that uh, your younger brother came so late. Uh, my my only sibling, also she was 
she was born when I was, I think, uh, 14, 13 or 14. So we have quite an age difference between us as well. And <laughs> I don't know if you got it, but I got it. Everyone was like, wow, you're going to be like the third parent. It's like crazy. You're, and we just fought like brother and sister, regardless of the age difference. <laughs> oh. oh, no, I wound up actually being the third parent because both my parents were working in the grocery store that they owned. Ah. So after school, I'd have to go home and change my brother's diapers and feed him. Uh, so, so I got the full taste of what it was like to be a parent when I was a teenager. Uh, and the relationship, I mean, it was fine, uh, but I felt more like an uncle to my little brother than, than, uh, I felt like a brother. Now that, that he's in his thirties, we have more of a, a, a brotherly relationship where we get together almost every week and, uh, go out for sushi and, and talk. But growing up, I, there, there were parts of me that went, oh man, I, I really don't want to be a parent because now I know what it's like and it's. It's, it's no fun. I have, to, I have to give up a lot of stuff in order to, to raise this kid. <laughs> yeah. Um, so let's see. You're, uh, I had another thing, but of course I lost it. This is why I write things down next to me. Um, I was, I was going to say um, the, the whole first year of college story sounds extremely familiar to me. <laughs> I'm not sure how familiar that sounds to you, Chris. Uh, I think we were both kind of... Uh, extended length students or return to school a few times. Um, my my personal story is very very similar. Although my um, the college that I went to is is also kind of or at least at the time was a small town college. Now they're a little bit more centered in Grand Rapids, and so they're they're a little bit bigger city. But uh, I did I did a very similar thing. I went into uh, initially into computer science, um, which I did have a passing interest in, um, and it seemed like a good field to get into. Um, but uh, I ended up um, having a similar issue with grades and taking time off, and then coming back and getting a degree in film and video, which I think um, you know, looking back, was kind of the thing that I really wanted to pursue to begin with. Um, and now strangely enough, I work at a, at a place where most of my job kind of centers around computers, but I still get to, uh, tell stories with, uh, with my job. Um, it's interesting how the, in the modern world, you get, you get to experience some of the combination of, um, storytelling, creative arts and, uh, and bringing technology into that as well. I think there's more advantages today, too, because technology makes it easier for you to put stories together in different uh, uh, different ways. I know when I was starting out as a writer, it was simply, you know, pen to paper, or in my case, it was, you know, fingers to a keyboard on a word processor. So, I mean, you still had to print things out. I don't know if you're old enough to remember dot matrix printers. <laughs> yep. Yep. With the perforated holes on the sides, that the, the, they were the guides to roll the paper out and... I, I would finish a manuscript and and I would I'd, I'd hit print, and then I'd go away for two hours and wait for that thing to shoot off the printer. <laughs> and everybody had to clear the room because it was so loud as it was zzz, 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 oh, yeah. going off. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yes, I um, yes, my story is very similar as well because I was the what they call non traditional student when I went back the second time after ten years in retail. <laughs> so. I my first uh, experience in college, I majored in euchre. So, um, oh, euchre! I know euchre. I, that was another reason why I got the dean's vacation. <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so, yeah, looking at uh, your bio, uh, playwright, television story editor, radio. I mean, your books, you do all these presentations at schools. Uh, do you, like, enjoy the diversity that uh, you have? Or is there, like, some path that you prefer more than the others? Oh, I have a very short attention span when it comes to my career. So, so I'm constantly jumping from one genre to another. Uh, I started in theater. Uh, uh, writing plays for the Edmonton Fringe Festival, uh, which is sort of an alternate festival that happens in August. It's 10 days long. Uh, people who want to break into theater, they'll, they'll put their money down, get a venue, and then they have to write a script and produce their own script with their friends or whatever actors they can scrounge up. Uh, so I did that for about, I'd say, four or five years before I, I started sort of branching out a little bit and also doing work in radio. Uh, I did a commentary series for CBC. Uh, and then I remember it, my dream at the time was I wanted to work in television. And, and so I decided, you know, what I would do is just find a way to break into television without actually having to leave Edmonton. So, so the major centers where you go to if you want to work in television would be like in Canada, you'd go to Toronto, uh, maybe Vancouver, you might have a shot at it. Uh, and certainly down in the States, you go down to, to Los Angeles. But I thought, I'm going to be a television writer in Edmonton. I'm just hoping that there's some television productions here in the city. Uh, at the time, there was one production. It was um, something that was just starting out. It was called Jake and the Kid, an hour-long uh, family series adapted from W.O. Mitchell's uh, 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 Jake and the Kid uh, stories. And I remember I was uh, at the Banff Television Festival, and, and I was speaking to one of the uh, Edmonton producers about the show, and he said, well, we're not looking for writers uh, right now, but we are trying to cast the first season. In fact, we're looking for a Chinese actor to play the role of Henry Wong, uh, the owner of the cafe in the town. Now, I, I had limited acting experience. I mean, I did some improv with uh, Rapid Fire Theater, uh, theater sports in Edmonton. Uh, but I thought, you know what, that'd be a great way to meet the other producers and, and just be charming and yeah. funny. And hopefully yep. they'd remember me uh, later on when they were looking for writers and maybe they'd go, hey, you remember that that weird guy that came in and auditioned for the part? Maybe we should give him a call and see if he'd be interested in pitching story ideas. So I remember I went in and I auditioned for the part. And my plan backfired because I wound up getting the role. <laughs> and I had to convince the producers that I wasn't really an actor. I was just a, a writer who just had no common sense and was just trying to meet the producers. And the producer says, no, 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 don't worry. We just want you to be yourself on screen. Don't worry about it. You're charming. Just, just, just be yourself. And apparently, myself on camera is very wooden. <laughs> I have what, uh, what, I've, what I've termed... Uh, penguin arm acting syndrome. That's where my arms go stiff like uh, penguin wings. <laughs> and uh, uh, I, I think the producers saw the, the, the folly of their, their uh, decision in casting me. And uh, they started to pare away my lines of dialogue. I think I started off with, uh, I think I had 12 lines of dialogue in the first episode I was in. And by the last episode, I think I was cut down to one line in the background. <laughs> Uh, but I, I stuck it uh, stuck it out for that uh, first season. I kept finding ways to talk to the story department and try to figure out how they put stories together. And and uh, I was able to impress them enough with just sort of the conversations I had with the story editors uh, that when it came to the end of the first season, um, they fired me from the show as an actor and then brought me on 
uh, the second season as a story intern, and, and that's how I sort of got my break in television. And uh, from there, I sort of lasted for about five, six years working in television, and then I, I sort of got the bug again to try something new, and that's where I made the transition into writing books for kids. Uh, so, so I do tend to jump around a lot. So, so thankfully, there's no shiny objects in in my basement right now. <laughs> Otherwise, I'd be talking about uh, tiny, shiny little jewels hanging from walls. <laughs> yeah, I, um, because I am from the states and uh, newly moved to Edmonton, I'd never, even though from what I read of the history of the show, I'd never seen the show that you worked on. And uh, oh, nobody I, has now. <laughs> <laughs> it's gone into obscurity. You know, the, the, the crazy thing is uh, uh, the producers, uh, they, they sold the rights to some, some other countries. And I guess uh, France picked up uh, Jake and the Kid. And I remember I, I, I had a chance to uh, work in, in Europe and, and my wife came out and we decided to do one of those whirlwind tours uh, uh, during one of our hiatuses. And, mm-hmm. and so we had, I think, two weeks to romp around Europe. And we wound up in the south of France. And we checked into our hotel, and I went and turned on the television, and sure enough, there was Jake and the Kid playing, and and it was dubbed <laughs> in French, and and I realized, man, I am an amazing actor in French. <laughs> if I don't have to talk as myself, I'm I'm a pretty good actor when someone else actually voices what I say. I I often think about those guys like a. Uh, I don't uh I don't watch a lot of uh anime but when someone suggests oh you have to see this and then you watch it you just you just have to like wonder or a lot of the new Netflix shows are multilingual and so like you'll see the credits like these are the Spanish voices and these are I often wonder like those actors that do like the voiceover dub like a guy who does like Tom Cruise in Korea, right? Like he's just like, please, Tom Cruise, have a good career, right? Like, oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like your success is like pinned on someone else. You're like, oh no, he was arrested for something. <laughs> and and what do you put on your resume? Do you go, I'm the Korean Tom Cruise? <laughs> yes. Yeah, that's an interesting thing. Like, and does that work? Like, does he get to go to bars and be like, well, you know, you may have heard me <laughs> in <laughs> yes, Mission Impossible. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, that's, so, yeah, I would, I, your credits or um, your bio, I was interested in the other show, though, because it just sounded like, wow, that would be like such a fun show i see feels like it'd be really successful now that we have like all this connected technology but the um the incredible story studio where you were the story editor oh the yeah that was to me uh, that was one of the my my favorite experiences working on a television series i mean the concept was that the producers went across canada and uh worked with students i think they were working mostly with uh upper elementary and junior high students to get them to uh write short stories and uh, uh i i don't think there was any agenda in terms of what kind of stories they had to write they just had to write a short story that um they thought that, that they would enjoy that could be uh any genre could be science fiction could be a comedy could be a drama and uh, the kids would submit their short stories and the producers and their assistants would go through thousands of submissions and pick anywhere from, I think, 25 to 30 stories that they would then adapt into short films. And in the episodes, they would run 
two of the the short films back to back, or if there was a story that was significant enough, they 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 devote the entire half hour to to just one kid's story. And uh, what they did was they they make the short films, and the kids would be flown out to Regina because that's where the the show was uh, being filmed. Uh, and uh, the kids got to tour the set and see their their story come to life. And uh, they also got to. Uh, 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 they didn't introduce the the, the clip or the, the short film, but the, but they were interviewed um, at the end of and at the end of the show. And and my job as the story editor on Incredible Story Studio was was to try to preserve the kid's voice. I mean, obviously you you can't sort of translate word for word or adapt word for word the uh, the, the kid's story into a to a, a, a short film because obviously there sometimes there there are things that you just can't pull off in television that you can. Uh, in writing, so so we had to make a few changes, and and oftentimes I, I would hide in in the uh, uh, the story department office when the kids showed up. When I knew that that I had to make too many changes to their story because I just didn't want to look them in the eye when they said, "What did you do to my work?" <laughs> <laughs> I'm yeah. sorry, I'm sorry, I, Mrs. Rowling, but uh, we just don't have enough fr- flying brooms to pull off that many wizards. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. I just, I was like, wow, in today's world where, you know, we don't, we don't uh, have sort of like 15 minutes of fame. We have like three seconds of going viral. Like, I just feel like that, that sort of concept would probably work really well now because like everyone wants their like three seconds, (laughs) you know, it gets shorter and shorter, right? That that time of uh, uh, our time in the limelight. Yep. That that was my next thing. I was like, "Well, you were popular for a long enough, but we're gonna have to let you go, Marty." Um, just kidding. Okay. <laughs> I'll be just like David Letterman's set, just thrown in the dumpster. <laughs> uh, so your uh, yeah, you said like your current passion is uh, children's books. Uh, what are what are the challenges in writing children's books? I guess that's kind of a broad uh, question, but it just what's interests me is that my wife is a teacher here in Edmonton, and I do a lot of organizing the books through the specific reading program they have. And I never really paid attention that much to children's books, but uh, so my layman's view of like children's literature was, oh, you know, like Keith Richards and like celebrities like write quote unquote children's books like how hard can that be? And now that my wife's a teacher, I realize like, you know, there's a lot of specific things that go into these books. And so I'm always just like, how I'm just baffled. Like there's so many books. I'm like, how does one actually get a successful children's book? Well, if you know, you should tell me cause I still <laughs> am trying to figure it out. <laughs> I, I think one of the, uh, the, one of the things that I found most challenging, uh, because before I, I came to kids' books, I, I was predominantly writing for an adult audience with my, my stage plays. Uh, and when I started writing uh, the kids' books, there was this sort of natural instinct that I had that, that maybe what I was writing was, was sort of a, a, a dumbed-down version of an adult story. And, and very quickly in the early drafts of, of, of one of my first novels, I realized that that was not the way to go because it just didn't seem authentic. And, and I realized that I couldn't write down to the kids' I had to sort of remember what it was like to be a kid and and sort of remember the issues that were important to me when I was 10 and 11 years old at a time. And, 
and and then sort of build from there. So that's writing to them rather than writing down to them. With my uh, Marty Chan mystery series, uh, a lot of that is I was sort of getting down to the sort of kid eye level and just sort of going, oh, yeah, I remember like how self-conscious I felt when I went to school. And if I wore the wrong colored pants, you know, I could be singled out and targeted to be teased for that day. And I also remember, you know, instantly having a crush with a, a girl at school simply because she talked to me. Uh, and so I had to sort of... Uh, go back in time and, and, and remember sort of the issues that I went through as a kid. Now, obviously now the details of what happens to kids today are certainly different than, than what happened to me when, when I was a kid, but the sort of fundamental fears and emotions, uh, uh, they still resonate today. So, so there's something universal about the experience of growing up. And, and, and I, I had to capture that when I was working on uh, the kids' books. And I, I, for me, that was one of the biggest challenges because it, it's very easy to sort of slip into a mode where you're going to say, okay, I'm going to write a kids' book with a moral at the end where we're going to learn exactly why it's important to make friends instead of pick on people. And, and I think kids are smart today and they can see through that kind of message very quickly. And what they're looking for is the same thing that I think we, we're looking for when we're adults. We're looking for a story that connects to us on an emotional level and doesn't condescend or, or patronize to us. Yeah, um, the way the specific program that they have at uh, the school currently where my wife is at, um, you know, obviously there's different levels of reading and I that that has to be like a tremendous challenge when you're making a children's book because like obviously like the lower level books when I'm reorganizing them, you know, they're like um, the title of the book is The Cat, right? Because like even though this is grade two, like we're – this is the lower level, so we're still struggling on learning words. So it's got to be hard to get like a real story in there when you're dealing with like three and four letter words because like these students are at a lower level. So yeah, and can, and, and and there's part of me that goes uh, with the, the the kids who are uh, reluctant readers. You know, the, there are those books that 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 are designed specifically for them, and and I think. You know, they they don't even look like real books because they're so thin and small. And I keep thinking if I was a kid, I'd be embarrassed to have that book in my hand when I could see other kids walking around with hardcover books that are super thick. And uh, and I keep thinking, you know, maybe if we're trying to cater to uh, the reluctant readers, maybe sort of hide the books, make them bigger or something so that so that the kids actually feel like they're, they're holding the same kind of book as, as all the other uh, as their classmates. Camouflage. Yeah, camouflage. Well, they, they did that for adults. I remember when yep. uh, Harry yep. Potter, uh, they, they put out the sort of adult version of Harry Potter books. They changed the covers so that adults wouldn't be embarrassed when they're sitting on the bus and, and reading a Harry Potter novel. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Yep. Um, the Yeah, it's interesting that you say that because uh, as I go through – because basically she hands out the books throughout the week at their particular reading level. And then at the end of the week, she has like this bucket full of books that I have to again go organize back into categories. <laughs> and so at the higher levels, like I can see like, OK, these like Cam Jensen books are a little bit thicker. You know, I get it. But then like every once in a while, I'll be stumped because um, there's a few like pamphlets in there. And I'm like, wow, this is a high level. What is this like really? Like you said, you kind of judge a book by its cover. It's very thin. It's a pamphlet for crying out loud, but it's on some sort of like 
scientific thing like these are animals in the ocean and here's like their latin names and stuff so so yeah shouldn't judge a book by its cover i guess oh no you you never should (laughs) yeah um so yeah you uh you mentioned it and uh it's also uh in some of the research that i did like a lot of your work does deal with uh prejudice um I know that you were, like, as you said, you were the only Chinese student in your uh, small northern Alberta school. Did you experience a lot of adversity or was some of it um, self-inflicted? Like, oh, wait, am I different? Like, I think it was a combination of both. Uh, certainly in the early years at, at my school um, in Warrenville, I, I had trouble fitting in uh, because I was the only, I think at the time I was the only person of color uh, at my school. So, so I knew that I, I looked different. I felt different because the kids were obviously not talking to me in the same way they were talking to the friends. Plus my parents moved to the town when I was starting grade two. So I didn't have the advantage of starting at, in, in kindergarten with all the other kids. So you had that sort of new student syndrome plus, yeah. uh, uh, being, uh, a culturally diverse student, uh, set me apart. Uh, and and one of the things that I sort of uh, saw early on uh, as I was growing up is, was uh, there's a pecking order that, that comes in schools. And, and, and kids, even at an early age, they recognize, okay, uh, I want to be friends with you because I think you're cool. Or I don't want to hang around with you because you pick your nose. And I don't want to be associated with a nose picker. And, and, uh, I, I kind of felt like I, I was, I was being sized up by the other kids and, and I knew that I was sort of moving further and further down the pecking order. Even the nose picker didn't want to be beside me. Uh, and I remember, um, what I would do is I would, I, I had my own self-imposed exile. I would, I would send myself or banish myself to the school library and I would hide, uh, because I knew the kids would just start teasing me if they saw me at recess or at lunchtime. And the best place to hide at a school is the library because not a lot of kids go there. And even the kids who go there, you can hide from them by simply picking up a book and opening it up and and, uh, putting your face behind the cover. So oftentimes recess and lunch breaks, uh, that's where I would be and I would be hiding behind a book. And of course, when you hide behind a book, you, you naturally start reading what's on the page. And uh, one of the early books that I fell in love with was uh, uh, the Hardy Boys detective novels. And I remember, uh, I think there were like 50, 51 or 52 books in the series. And and I tried to read every single one of them. And unfortunately, because um, uh, this was a small town, the school library didn't have a budget to bring in all the uh, titles in the series. So I actually became a detective myself in search for the missing (laughs) titles because on the back of the Hardy Boys detective novels, they actually list all the titles that you can find. And so I would go to the the town library and I tried to find out if those books, those missing books were uh, in the collection. And and whenever my parents went to the city, uh, if we came near a book section, I would go into the book section and try to find uh, Hardy Boy's detective novel. And uh, I remember my my white whale of Hardy Boy's detective novels was the detective's handbook. Uh, The handbook was supposed to teach you how to be a detective. And I really wanted to be a detective just like uh, Frank and Joe Hardy. In fact, sometimes I had fantasies that their dad, Fenton Hardy, uh, might have had a, an affair in Hong Kong and I might be the illegitimate son of Fenton Hardy. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I remember I, 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 uh, I found the perfect training ground to be detective. It was in my parents' grocery store. Uh, and at the store, I, I appointed myself the store detective. 
I took my job very seriously. I made myself a little cardboard badge that said Marty Chan, store detective. I pinned it on the inside of my jacket. And whenever a customer walked in, I would just flash them my badge and I'd just say, Marty Chan, store detective. I've got my eye on you. And uh, I also had a pair of plastic handcuffs that I clipped to the back of my belt. And I even got my hands on a water pistol called the Super Squirter and I jammed it down the front of my pants. Uh, so, so I really wanted to be a detective. And I, I remember, uh, there was one particular incident that, that I, well, I essentially put my, uh, an end to my career as a store detective. And that's when I tried to arrest one of my dad's customers for shoplifting. Uh, it was an older lady, uh, who came to the, my dad's store every Saturday and, uh, she would always, uh, swing by the produce section and grab a bunch of grapes uh, but while she was shopping through the rest of the store, she would eat one or two of the grapes from the bunch. And when she got to the cash register, she would never tell my dad that she ate the grapes. So I thought she was trying to steal from my dad. And I remember one Saturday, I actually confronted her and said, you know, Mrs. Johnson, you're under arrest for stealing grapes. And uh, she was none too pleased about the accusation. And, and uh, my dad pulled me off store detective duty and <laughs> put me on garbage detail for, for, I think, pretty well the rest of that year. <laughs> Turn in your badge and super soaker. That's right. It's, a, it's like a scene from Lethal Weapon. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> I like it. You're like kicking a can in behind the store in the alley because right, like you're right. like three days from retirement. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> I'm getting too old for this. Oh, I can't see that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah, it's 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 fascinating to me because um here I was basically I was um, I was the George Costanza um, of Seinfeld um, trying to prove that he had black friends uh, when I was younger because one of my well still my best friend is Vietnamese but um, so I'm like oh I can understand like these things when I really can't but uh, <laughs> what it was it was really interesting just like going places. Um, with Wook because I'm, I think, wow, I'm learning a lot here. And, you know, America, I'm, I was taught in social studies is the melting pot, but I live in the Midwest. So (laughs) (laughs) Wook is the only Vietnamese person I've ever seen in my life. Uh, But yeah, like it was interesting as we got older and we would travel, like we, I think we went out, um, we went out to uh, a pizza place one night and, uh, and we kept asking for the waitress to come and she hardly ever would show up. And, uh, you know, he was like, it's because I'm here. And I was like, oh, yeah, we're in a lot smaller town than we live in. <laughs> like, I was just like, this is weird. Like, I can't believe like in today's age. Right. Like, yeah. So, um, as I said, I don't actually understand any of it. But uh, <laughs> oh. so well, I shouldn't well. say, yeah, empathize. But, yeah, I. I can kind of uh, see how things would be troublesome for you because I grew up in a small town where there wasn't a lot of diversity. It's it's amazing being here in Edmonton, like um, and participating in my wife's like grade two class, which it is very diverse, and like seeing like some of their lessons, which they teach like uh, you know, different cultures in Canada, and she celebrates Chinese New Year's in class and all this stuff, and I was just like, wow, this is crazy, like this is way better than my small town that I came from. Right. I know. And that's one of the great joys I take when I go into schools and do visits is that that I can see a lot more diversity in classrooms today. I mean, there's still the odd 
school that I will go to, usually in, in rural Alberta, where uh, I'm just looking for the one sort of kid who doesn't blend in with the others. And sometimes there's just the one sitting in the back, looking down at the floor, hoping nobody notices him. Yeah. yeah. Um, and then I was thinking like, you know, once you feel like, oh, this is a lot better situation, then of course we have to deal with the other side, which is sort of what your play kind of uh, talks about, you know, mom, dad, I'm living with a white girl, right? Because now you've got sort of a kind of a reverse switch situation where your parents are not understanding this whole thing with like a white girl, right? <laughs> yeah. I went from being too Chinese to not Chinese enough. Uh, and I remember when, um, when I was in uh, university, I I'd first come across this, this, this notion of uh, discrimination within a cultural group. Cause I, I, I just thought, mm. you know, I'm Chinese, so I should fit in with all the other Chinese. And in university, um, one of the things I wanted to do is I wanted to like get together with other Chinese people. And and I saw that at the university there was a a, a Chinese group that was meeting. It was a social group, and I thought, oh, great, I'll I'll hang out with some other Chinese. When I got there, I saw that there was a separation between the students who. Uh, had grown up in Hong Kong and had come to Canada to go to university. And then the uh, what they called the CBCs, the Canadian-born Chinese. I guess that would be the diplomatic way of putting it. And then <laughs> I came across a new term, which uh, uh, which I was not pleased about. But uh, uh, I was referred to as a banana because I was yellow on the outside and white on the inside. And uh, I, I remember it was sort of a sort of a... Uh, an eye-opening experience to realize that there is discrimination that comes uh, from all sides. It's not just the the person who's the person of color being mm-hmm. discriminated by the majority of people. There's also discrimination or prejudice within uh, a cultural group. And I know my mom uh, certainly had her own prejudices. Uh, uh, she decided that uh, she did not want her firstborn son to to marry anyone other than a Chinese girl. Uh, I remember one day she she pulled me aside, and I was a teenager at the time. But she she pulled me aside. She gave me the the, the weirdest form of dating advice. She said, "Marty, whatever you do, don't date white girls." Now we're the only Chinese family in the entire town, so uh, <laughs> my, my social life is pretty well non-existent. Uh, but uh, my mom's paranoia and prejudice stuck with me years later when I finally moved out of my parents' home. And uh, I fell in love with this uh, uh, a Dutch girl, uh, Michelle. And uh, we were so much in love, we decided to move in together. But I was so afraid of telling my parents about my new living arrangements that I decided to keep it secret for about three weeks. <laughs> and uh, at the time, uh, the phone company here in Alberta, TELUS, had just introduced um, a call display so we could screen any calls coming in from my parents and Michelle knew not to answer the phone. And not only was Michelle beautiful, but she was also patient and generous. And she agreed to live out of boxes so that at a moment's notice, we could stick all our things into the boxes and shove the boxes into the closets to wipe out all traces of her existence in my apartment. Uh, Now, unfortunately, if you've lived anywhere longer than a couple of days, you know your stuff starts to spread out. And pretty soon there's an extra toothbrush in the bathroom, a pair of women's shoes in the front hall closet. And, and I knew I had to come clean, but 
I was deathly afraid of my parents' reaction, so I wasn't about to do it in private. I, I called my parents up, and I invited them to this popular Chinese restaurant in Edmonton where I offered to pay for dinner. And I was just thinking, popular restaurant, lots of customers, plenty of witnesses if anything goes wrong. And meanwhile, my parents are thinking, oh, what a good Chinese son. He's offering to pay for dinner. Uh, now, I don't know if you've ever been to a, an authentic Chinese restaurant, but it's basically like eight or nine courses, one plate that comes out mm-hmm. after the other. Mm-hmm. And I'm trying to work up the nerve to tell my parents the truth. And I figure the best thing to do is just to time the news with the arrival of my parents' favorite dish, which is uh, sweet and sour pork. And so I remember I was like breaking into a bit of a cold sweat as I'm waiting for that dish to come out. And when it finally lands on the table, I just blurt out, Mom, Dad, I'm living with the white girl. My parents' reaction was not the greatest. Uh, The best way I can characterize their reaction is there's a word in Chinese that you use when your life goes terribly wrong. Uh, That word is aya, and the English equivalent would be like, oh, no. But the louder you say it, the worse your life is. So if something small happens, like let's say my mic drops out, I just go, ayah. Or if I find out somebody's broken into my house, my reaction would be a little bigger. It would be more like, ayah. Or in the case of my mom, when she found out I was living with a white girl, her reaction was, ayah. <laughs> so here I am in the middle of this busy Chinese restaurant and my parents are yelling at me at the top of their lungs in Cantonese. Half the customers can understand what's being said. The other half can't. So all the non-Chinese customers are looking at us and going, wow, that's a loud Chinese family. And meanwhile, all the Chinese people are looking at us and going, yeah, give it to him. He's a bad Chinese son. (laughs) Well, while my parents are yelling at me, that's when I thought, you know what? This might make a good idea for a play. And that became the inspiration for mom, dad, I'm living with a white girl. Wow. Yeah. My, uh, my, as I said, my friend, uh, I was always a humorous story too, is he had a similar experience. Um, uh, and his parents told him and I was like, I just asked him, you know, we were probably like in college at the time. Uh, I said, so why don't they want you to date anyone but Vietnamese girls? And he said, Oh, they watch too much TV. And I was like, what does that mean? And he's like, Chris, my parents told me that I shouldn't date white girls because all they want to do is get pregnant so they can have my baby and force me to marry them. (laughs) (laughs) And I was like, I mean, this is like, you know, 90210 uh, Melrose Place kind of days. It was like, okay, you know what? They're probably right. Like every TV show they watch, that's pretty much the plot show. (laughs) Oh, man. (laughs) Yeah. I just thought, you know, there must be some sort of cultural significance. And they were like, no, just don't date white girls because they just want to get you pregnant and marry them. So, (laughs) (laughs) And so they can take all your money. I I think that would be the subtext of all that. Right. That's the that's the underlying you're going to have success and these white girls are going to take advantage of you. We, we should have connected with you sooner, Marty, so you could have watched uh, on the other podcast with us, The Last Dragon, because there was a lot of cultural stuff going on. <laughs> <laughs> the Last Dragon. Oh, my goodness. Is Barry that the, Gordy's the Bruce Last Lee Dragon? biopic? In which a African-American co-ops um, Japanese and Chinese culture. <laughs> oh, my goodness. <laughs> yeah, it was interesting. <laughs> um, so, let's see. What other... 
spicy questions did I prepare for you? Oh, you were talking about, uh, we didn't really discuss that, the uh, school presentations. Um, you do a lot of those, don't you? Uh, yeah, I'm fairly busy through the school year doing uh, author visits or, or writing workshops. Um, uh, I do some in Edmonton, but I'll travel around Alberta and do presentations. There's a, a great organization that tours uh, Alberta authors and illustrators in the fall. It's uh, it's called the Young Alberta Book Society. And uh, they try to equalize uh, schools and libraries across the province because obviously – uh, if you're in a rural area in Alberta, it's, it's, it's hard to bring in an author because of the cost of uh, travel or accommodations. Uh, the Young Alberta Book Society in October uh, will tour um, authors and illustrators and they will cover or subsidize the cost of travel and accommodation. So uh, if a school is in, in northern Alberta and they want to book a, a writer from Calgary, uh, they essentially are just paying for the uh, the writer's presentation fee, and the Young Alberta Book Society will cover the cost of travel and accommodation. So, so it's basically as if you were bringing the presenter from across the street, which is a great way to encourage literacy, especially in some of the outlying communities where the kids might not have a lot of exposure uh, to to local authors, and they may just assume that 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 writing or writers are are dead people from someplace that they don't live, and uh, uh, so. So that organization does a great job of, of uh, promoting literacy in, in rural Alberta. And I've been involved with that organization for about 10 years. Uh, one of the things I love is when I go out into schools and, and do a talk about my books. And, and I always sort of treat it like uh, I'm going in cold and I'm, I'm probably going to meet a hostile audience where the kids go, oh, I hate reading. What's this guy going to do? He's boring. He's a writer. And, and I sort of go in and I sort of break down any other stereotypical notions of what an author is. And uh, I, I'm always happy at, at the end of the presentation when, when I, I see kids who were sort of sullen and surly at the beginning of the presentation and, and by the end of the pre- presentation they're uh, usually the first ones to throw their hands up in the air when I'm asking uh, for questions or, or if I'm asking if they, they want to volunteer for any one of my uh, writing exercises. So, so I, I sort of treat it as a, a great way to try to win over uh, reluctant readers. Nice. And so, uh, yeah, like you're, you're very busy during the school year, like you said. Uh, and then obviously you're still working on the books. Like, uh, what's, uh, what's your typical week like? Do you like, do you have like time set aside to write or do you run off to a French cottage like, uh, Colin Firth in Love <laughs> yes, Actually? Uh, yes, or? I'm so rich. I have a cottage. It's <laughs> It's a lean-to out in the backyard. <laughs> uh, uh, when I tour, I, I generally try uh, to just focus on, on the school presentations. I, I, when I was a younger man, uh, I had the energy to go back to my hotel room, crack open the laptop, and, and bang off, you know, like 5,000 words. But now I've sort of reached that point where, you know, I need my naps. So <laughs> if I come off the road from a school presentation... Uh, I will uh, just treat it as I worked a full day and, and I'm, I'm going to get some downtime. Uh, but I also know my schedule uh, and when there are slow periods in the year, uh, I know that I don't get a lot of bookings, obviously, in December or over the summer. So I use those months uh, to do the, the bulk of my writing. Uh, and then when I'm touring, 
uh, I might be able to do revisions because because uh, revisions are for me a lot easier to to deal with than than writing something from uh, a first draft stage because with a first draft I, I really do need a solid chunk of time to sit down and stare at the screen because you know a good eighty five percent of my writing time during a first draft is spent on Twitter and Facebook procrastinating. Uh, and, uh, so, uh, so I do need that solid chunk of time so that, that I can sort of carve out a first draft. Hey, uh, so yeah, we were back for an episode of Montreal Sauce. Actually, we, we recorded this one with Marty, uh, quite a while ago. We have a part two coming up, uh, next week. So, uh, thanks for sticking with us, uh, and thanks for your patience while we did some of our summer break stuff. Uh, we're back doing the live stream thing on Thursday nights at 9 p.m. Eastern, uh, currently Eastern Daylight Time. So, go ahead and figure out whatever that is for you. Uh, and, uh, let's see. You can find me on Twitter. Uh, I'm at Paul D. Uh, you can find Chris on Twitter as well. Uh, he's Sick Days, S-I-K-K-D-A-Y-S. And you can find our guest, Marty Chan, uh, on Twitter, uh, Marty underscore Chan, C-H-A-N. Uh, and we will catch you next week. Thanks. Bye. <laughs>